Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I thought it took God seven days to make the world. He rested on the seventh. I always thought he should have put the extra day in instead of half-assing it. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the actress Michelle Rodriguez defended Liam Neeson, saying he can't be racist because of how he kissed Viola Davis. And you don't make out with the race you hate. Not like that. By that standard, are you racist? <laughs> by, 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 by that standard, uh, unfortunately... I hate most people in the world. Um, <laughs> I like. I'm. I'm not gonna go into. I'm not gonna air my my dirty laundry. You're not gonna say which people you hate exactly. But <laughs> no, no. But um. But you know, in my life experience, I I blame society. They set a standard of beauty for me, and especially as like a. A, a light-skinned Latino male, like the amount, the the colorism that I was just raised with, I'm entrenched into my psyche. You know, I'm, I don't endorse it. I, I don't want it to be my true self. It's just my, but perhaps you could call it my system one, just <laughs> acting up. I would call you a light-skinned, quote-unquote, Latino male. <laughs> But well, uh, your use of your use of quotes is just what a Jew would say. What like, exactly? What, so. <laughs> so what you're doing is essentially the Liam Neeson thing, where you're sort of confessing something you're not particularly proud of. But you know, you know, I try. I tried. I just you know, like I I, I just you didn't tried what have enough. I <laughs> I've tried to to uh, make out with with. Viola people Davis. of all people, <laughs> really, I tried to make out, but uh, what happened? They just slapped me. Yeah, you know. Yeah, they're like, "Who are you? Like, who are you? Like, why are you walking up to me?" <laughs> this is turning. I didn't expect it to go this direction, but it's turning into a kind of Harvey Weinstein kind of. It's a no, but it, there is an interesting discussion. I don't remember if we've ever talked about it. Um, I, I think that if you ask most people, and they're being they're being honest. I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't have hard data on this, but I think that people have preferences um, for particular looks and particular races. There is evidence actually from speed dating studies um, that I think we've mentioned before. The question of whether it's racist to prefer one race 
in terms of sexual attraction is an interesting one to me. And like, I want to defend people's ability to say that I'm only attracted to say like black men and not call them racist against Asian men. Like, I don't think that equality in that sense requires that you be attracted to everybody. If so, then I would be like, like a horrible anti-male, like, like what all the, you know, the drum, the drummers in the woods are like worried about. (laughs) (laughs) No, Uh, the, but I, no, I agree. I totally agree with you. Like I, you can't control what you're, yeah. And who you're attracted to. This is why, and I, so I was reading something and I forget where, and I don't know to what extent this is true, but apparently there's a certain segment of the transgendered community. You know, if someone is a lesbian, they want them to still be attracted to someone who's transitioned into a woman and, or right. transitioning. Yeah. And they say it's you know, transphobic if you make a distinction, but it's like, huh. You know, I was reading something. She's like, I'm a lesbian. Like, you have a penis. Like, this isn't, this isn't isn't complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think that's fine. Like, I defend the lesbian's right to not be attracted to someone with a penis. And I defend your right to only be attracted to, like, Hitler youth. (laughs) (laughs) No, people who look like Hitler youth. Not actually. Um (laughs) But the Liam Neeson thing, which I I know barely about, like I didn't really read too much about it. Um, <clears throat> like, I, I think it's fair to say that he was <laughs> totally being racist when he did what he did. Like whether or not he is racist now, I don't know. Uh, but definitely whether or not he kissed a black woman is not. <laughs> like, imagine like in all those clubs that, you know, like all those quote unquote Negro clubs that white people used to attend like back in the day and they there were plenty of white men who totally were attracted to black women and they were still fucking asshole race like they weren't marching they weren't like marching with dr king no but i do think it does say something about a person if they're willing to not willing but even eager to be intimate with a person of a certain race that there's a way in which it doesn't obviously say like for sure it's not overriding it's not absolute that they're not racist but it speaks right. to something i think I, it, it, it does it does speak like to it something. speaks to bill burr spe- that he's married to a black woman you know he makes a lot of sort of race on the borderline kind of oh, you know qu- right. and like oh i think the fact that he's married to a black woman and like credentials him yeah. I, uh, so okay so that that's a different claim but 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 the first one that it's that it's signals something about you um it, it, i think it it might um so like i i i grant that it's like information that could be on your side here but i do also think that it's possible, like set aside the marriage thing. Cause I think if you're married to somebody from another race and you're constantly interacting and yeah. you're, you know, treating like you're learning things that you might not have known about their experience. That's one thing, but like, just say like making out a white man, making out with a black woman. I don't think that it requires any sense of equality or non-racism. I think that you can fully uh, be racist in 
in a fundamental sense that doesn't require disgust at at like the physicality of them. I know that some people are racist like that. They, you know, old timey white people might say like, oh, like they might actually respond with disgust at like yeah. non-white people. But I don't right. think that it requires it now. You might, in fact, you could marry somebody and treat them like shit. Right. And, right. and, and, and there's, yeah. of course, like the horrible, ugly history of the, the slave and the the, right. the uh, plantation right. owner or whatever. And, you know. Right. But yeah. Uh, Ice Cube has a great, great song back when he was not making kids movies called Horny Little Devil, which is all about about like white men doing exactly that. And it's actually hilarious, really offensive if you're the kind of white person who thinks that that uh, people shouldn't talk bad about you. But <laughs> but also really funny. <laughs> says, um, yeah, I, I don't. So can we just talk one second about Liam Neeson? So here's the thing that I agree that. Uh, I, I agree with what you've said. Certainly at that time, I think him talking about it 30 years later is is overall kind of a good thing that he would bring it up. And the, the you know, anybody, and I don't know to the extent to which this is a huge story and people are wanting to like not see Liam Neeson movies. It's probably not a, that big a deal. But to the extent that it is, I think it shouldn't be like that's counterproductive. It's it's uh yeah i and i didn't hear like his comments about it like if he was talking about like the unfortunate way in which he acted um then i think it's actually it it i, I think we don't have enough of those conversations in fact like wh when i'm talking to students in intro psych this and this makes my fellow professors nervous who are lar largely white i, I try when talking about race i i try to like diffuse the situation by just admitting the ways in which I'm racist. And, and I feel like that, that opens up a little bit. It makes people less defensive. Like if, if somebody's willing to say that they themselves have thoughts or, or feelings that are racist, even though I reject them, they exist. And t actually talking about that, I, I think is the only way we're going to get past some of the, some of the things like yeah. some of the ills with society. It's just that, it's very difficult to do so when when you don't have a relationship of trust with somebody, mm -hmm. right? And the media is not the kind of trustworthy partner that you want to be talking to about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And social media also not. Right. And yeah. <laughs> right. Um, um, all right. So, so I had said system one to, g yeah. to give a segue into what we're going to talk about today so that you can say. Yes. So segment two, we're going to talk about actually like inspired by a suggestion that didn't make our uh, finalists because we didn't. Um, but it was it's about this idea of conceptual binaries and the degree to which we're wired to see things in terms of binaries and how that plays out in philosophy and psychology. And you found a really good paper about how this has played out in psychology and the problems with that. So that's what we'll talk about in the in the second segment. First segment, we're going to do our an another suggestion, uh, moral pet peeves. Uh, before we even get to that, and I know this has been all preludes, um, <laughs> but since our last episode, you have you are now a, like the star, the headliner in, of the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Monthly, if they still call it that, the Atlantic. That's uh, that's uh, that's right. I'm actually too big for this podcast now. Yeah. Um. No. 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 Thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, there was a really nice article written up by a woman named Kathleen McAuliffe about about disgust and politics. And um, but I just wanted to give a shout out to the graduate students who who did a lot of the work. So Yoel and I have been doing this. this Yoel Imbar, some of you may know him from his from when he used to be a friend of the podcast. Um, have been doing this work on political orientation and, and disgust. But this, a couple of grad, stu- grad students, Benjamin Roosh, who's mentioned in the article, and Rajan Anderson, who isn't unfortunately mentioned in the article, uh, spearheaded this work. It's on taste sensitivity and and political orientation. And it's a really cool finding. But but like, as always, the professors get the bulk of the credit and, and the grad students get a little bit shit on. So for all the grad Poor students Ra- out there. Rajan. What's his name? Poor Raj. Ra- Raj. Rajan Anderson. Uh, he's he's one of my students. Uh, great, great guy. But, you know, he, he's not the lead you know author. What? Though, like, that's kind of precious to be named Rajan. He's, he's half Indian, half white, dude. Oh, his, that's so, okay. I didn't know that. Because yeah. I, I thought Anderson. Bastard. No, Anderson <laughs> is not a particularly Indian name. I know. There are biracial people, Tim. You know? God. I'd love to. I'd love to be with one of them. <laughs> I didn't know where that one was going to end. <laughs> All right, let's talk about moral. Th- thanks for letting me talk about my own shit. But let's. You want to talk moral pet peeves? Uh, sure. Yeah. So we've come up with some moral pet peeves. This was sort of an, something that you expressed yeah. interest in so maybe talk about why you want to yeah, do it okay. really briefly let me get I, I feel like i'm very very tolerant of people's immorality so like i'm happily friends with people who are shady like who i know have done shit that that's bad not that i endorse it but like i don't i i i think i'm not a judgmental person but what i realize is that i'm a moralizing person in my everyday life and that like <laughs> bulk of my moral cognition and emotion comes from everyday interactions with people that like anger me to a degree that is probably well not probably completely unjustified and so so i wanted just a chance like and some of these we've mentioned before um yeah like i i think like well returning the card is yeah, returning that, the cart. Yeah, returning yeah, the exactly. cart at the supermarket parking lot. The people who don't do that, I think we both agreed they should be like lined up and shot. Like it should be. Yeah, yeah. Fuck proportionality. Yeah. Well, no, no, that, that is, is proportionality. Propor- yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is Lex Talion. Uh And then last episode we talked about people people who go to the ten items or fewer line oh, yeah. with like twenty items, um, and and don't seem to have like. Like, it'd be one thing if they were turning around and being like, I'm really sorry, I'm in a rush or something. I'd be like, oh, yeah, fine. Right. It's sh- but, like, they just know, like, no indication that they think anything is wrong. It's totally shameless, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, so, so my moralizing is what led to this, to this top, my hyper-moralizing. But I take it that you have, Yeah, I have do this. I, I was, you know, it was harder than I thought to think of this. Even, And I think that, like, you know, I've been meditating now for three and a half years. I think if well, there's one thing meditating is good for it is not getting as irritated and angry about these kinds of things um right. because actually one of my pet peeves was people who talk about meditation yeah no <laughs> i totally get that shit <laughs> but if you meditated then it wouldn't then bother wouldn't. you that much <laughs> uh, well i kissed i kissed a girl who meditates so you know <laughs> you must not be a, a meditationist 
All right. But sorry, one thing is my difficulty was distinguishing between uh, bad manners and what might be called an uh, actual moral pet peeve. And I don't know that there's a good line. And I think that part of my problem is uh, that I blur the line, but we can get right into it. No, into yeah. It. And don't even think about it in terms of binaries like that, like moral <laughs> conventional. You, you want to start? Uh, sure. Um, so this this still can get me pretty worked up and furious and yelling and like when you're on with somebody in customer service at a you know like a big company and they are telling you that they can't do anything to help resolve the issue and and there's telling you that when you know with 100 percent certainty they absolutely can that they're just choosing not to and they know that you know that and it's just a massive insult to your intelligence. It's just a game that they're playing. Like it's, it, it, exactly, like like toying with you, like you're a mouse and they're a cat. <laughs> I, I like I. That drives me absolutely crazy. Or like you realize, like I could call, I could just hang up, call back, get somebody else who, for whatever reason, just decides that they do want to help me. Like right. we all know and, that that's how this works. Like what? So like that, I, I hate that. I hate people who insult your intelligence in that kind of relation. And relation. is your certainty because you have had it happen before? Like how do you know for sure, for sure that they can? Because they can like every it? single time, like you get another person who has that same position. And they're able to magically like make your problems go away. Right. Like I do think it is a choice on their part. You know, I don't know what it would entail, but it's a choice right. on their part. Um, yeah, they probably get uh, disincentives to like say credit someone's account. Like they probably are on this like horrible like spreadsheet about like how right. much they. So that's uh, fine, and so I understand no, no, that. I agree with then you. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. tell me that's the deal. <laughs> Like yeah. I'm, I'm not helping you because I already helped two guys today, and like, so you, sorry. Just be upfront. I, I can actually take a real setback yeah. if I feel like the people are just being honest with me about what caused it and what's the deal going forward. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, the flip side is I've had like wonderful discussions. Sometimes, like, I get on customer service, and like the person is really nice, and we end up yeah. just just shooting the shit for a while. This one time I was on with Verizon and I don't know what pro the problem I was having. I don't, it wasn't about my bill or anything. I think it was about service or something like that. And um, she, like, I, I was just like actually having a fun conversation. And at the end she was like, sweetie, is there anything else I can help you with today? And I was like, uh, yeah, like, could you um, just like cover my bill for the next year? And just joking, obviously. Yeah. And she go, she started laughing, and she goes, "No, but I'll tell you what, I'll credit your account with a hundred dollars." Like, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, what a nice that's one. what I mean." I think they, when they're good people, because mm -hmm. you have such nightmarish Kafka esque experiences with the one, the ones who are actually really helpful, you feel like they're the best people in the in the entire world. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna work my way from from least disgusting to most. One thing I hate, hate is behavior in airports when you're at the gate and you're waiting for your flight and there's never obviously enough seats to accommodate the number of people who are on a plane. And so you're just looking for a place to sit and somebody has decided that their bag and their coat like require one or two extra seats and you're walking by clearly looking for a place to sit and they don't even make eye contact. They don't, 
Like they don't, it's not even entered there. They're not saving that for anybody. They're just being dicks. Or, or even just like when they have their carry on in the middle of the of the row and you you're trying to get around it and they're not even bothering to move it. It's like those little things make travel. Right. Travel is just like one like a whole set of minor annoyances. Yeah. Like please just be kind to like. Yeah. Just don't add to them. Like we're all yeah. in this bullshit together. I mean that's one that I like. I'm like Stockholm syndrome to I just expect it like I don't expect it to get better I just yeah I'm resigned to it well it's so bad that actually so I I should say that like I'm sure I engage in a lot of the behavior that I'm oh me too I do all of it except probably the I've never worked in customer service but I'm sure I've done something like that Right. And sometimes you just genuinely don't notice. So I can like yeah. give people the benefit of the doubt. All right. My second one is uh, people who don't control. <laughs> I wrote this down. And the, what I wrote is people who don't control they bratty fucking kids. Why <laughs> 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 I did it. Control. You're, you're racist. <laughs> and you're control. <laughs> no, no, no. I actually think that actually it's the opposite. Like this is. <laughs> Very common in the white community, probably more so. Like it's race agnostic. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I think if anything, it's more common, like, among white. So the actually, the example I had was on an airplane, and there's a kid in back of you, and the kid's just kicking the seat over and over again, and the parents just are not saying or (laughs) doing anything. And then also the ones who, like, bring their kids over to your house and... They're oh, like yelling at free rain. Yeah. and banging on the piano and like like making huge messes and just and it, we're both parents, so yeah. I feel like like we we have some right to complain about this because yeah, you know. So, Although but, Eliza was kind of an angel, you know, when she well, was at but, this age. Sure, sure. Like so, so was my daughter, but yeah, partly because of what yeah. what we did, right? Yeah. Like I agree. Well, maybe in our parent in our parenting episode, <sighs> yes. We, we might. <laughs> well, we have a big announcement to make uh, after the break. So, uh, yeah, like, uh, and, and you know, on the rare occasions where Eliza did act up in ways that other people had to suffer, like, we'd stop what was going on. Like, we'd take care of it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, if there's, like, a, a, a general principle I have of, like, respecting other people's shit, and when... You, you have kids, you bring them over to somebody's house and they start like touching the TV with their hands or, the, you know, or like so, anything like that might. And you're like, are you not noticing this? Like, are, right. Like, I think a lot uh, of the parents, they're so in, like dead numb to. They're just dead. Yeah, yeah. They're like because they have to deal with this all the time. And this is yeah. just nothing. Yeah. But that's a case where you feel like an, you can't bring it up because like you're an asshole. Yeah. If you tell somebody that their kids are like misbehaving, like, could you tell your kid not to like fucking like <laughs> knock over my, my vase? <laughs> I suspect I'm more capable of actually doing that and just saying <laughs> it than you are. Probably. Um, yeah. Too eager to be. All right. My, mine is a puzzling behavior. It's gross, but, like taking a shit and not flushing a toilet like in a public bathroom yeah this is like one of those things where like the flushers in public restrooms are beautiful feats of engineering like i wish i had that in my home like now we have these low flow toilets and like sometimes it gets stuck and you have to but like one press of that thing and it's sucking everything down 
and I have to walk in to like an explosive diarrhea situation or just even a big log. Like I don't, what I don't understand is how, how you could just not think to flush the toilet. Like, are they just forgetting? That seems like a weird thing to forget. You wipe your ass presumably and you look at the toilet. You put the toilet paper there. You look at the toilet. Yeah. You kind of want to review and be like, am I proud of this? Or like, <laughs> should, I, should I let someone else see this? Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes it's so beautiful that you don't <laughs> you don't want to be the only person who ever gets to see it. You know, take a picture. <laughs> That's what. Uh, yeah, just I know. I know. I, I I have I didn't put this on because it's not like. But my thing with public bathrooms is the people who go into a stall and piss into the stall, <laughs> but they leave the toilet seat down. So like now, <laughs> so now yeah, like, yeah, now there's just like a bunch of pee and you have, yeah, yeah, and so and now you are faced if you're going in there to piss, you're faced with the do I put the toilet seat up even though it has pee on it, or am I going to just also piss into a the toilet seat down? Yeah, you know, like the 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 one for the that you would sit on <laughs> right. if you take a shit, and you know, like I, and I've done both. Sometimes I just suck it up and like partly because yeah. I don't want people to think that I'm the one that did that. Do I know? I know. Yeah, no, I play janitor like, yeah. and, and I just like wipe it. Um, it but, but that d- deeply angers me. So this is a professional moral, but I think it's a moral issue for sure. People who, when they're giving a lecture or presentation, when they run over time... And, and uh, this is in a conference. In a especially. conference, yeah. yeah. Like when there's like three people in the same session or something. So then it's like horrible. But even if it's just their session and they were told, you know, 45 minutes and they're going to an hour. And, you know, those same people are the ones that are like constantly shuffling papers. You know, oh, should I do this part? I don't know. Like it's <laughs> it's it's like, did you not prepare for this? Like you knew we, we agreed to this like three months ago. Why are you doing <laughs> this right now? Like why are you making these decisions as if like somebody told you five minutes beforehand, hey, you're going to go on and do this paper in this amount of time, go. I, I yeah, I don't it's, like that. it's it's a, it's a the, disrespect for your audience. It's re, yeah, and and the worst is when they acknowledge it laughingly, and they're mm-hmm. like, "You guys don't mind, right? Like, you guys don't mind if I go a little over? Like, I really want to." get And I'm like, "Yeah, I do mind." I didn't even want to see the the normal length version of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny <laughs> they say shuffling papers though, because no in psychology, everybody just uses PowerPoint. Like nobody actually has a paper. Yeah. Um, uh, which makes, but but then what they do is they scroll through and they're like, "Do I have time right. for these slides?" Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, okay, I'll do this. Yeah, one. it's the same principle. <laughs> yeah, um, def- I know. I definitely agree. Um, this is my final one. I wasn't sure whether to put this on, um, and there are conditions to it, so I'm going to say it and just suspend your judgment. You're married, so this might not apply to you. Uh, not reciprocating oral sex. <laughs> So my, I am of the opinion that if you perform oral sex, that at the very least somebody should mention that uh, they might do it for you, not just ignore it entirely and just like rest on the, like on, like, oh, cool. Thanks. Like, I feel like there should really be some reciprocity there. Um, just you know it doesn't mean that you have to like maybe you hate 
giving oral sex and you love receiving it, which would be totally fine. But then just say that, like, just give somebody a heads up that you're not just being an asshole. Like, <laughs> this is sort of like my customer service thing. Like, just be <laughs> honest. Just, just be honest. You know, you could. <laughs> Oh uh, no, I, wow! I, okay, <laughs> yeah. I fear that I fear that this is gendered in the opposite way. That it's, men are much more reluctant to like they'll take it all the time and not not give it. Um, yeah. I, in fact, I'm sure that that's the case. I, I'm pretty sure too. I think there's mm-hmm. more of an expectation one way than in the other. It's, and I just like find that rude. The, this this is this is just. But you want you know. true reciprocity. Well, I want there to be that I want there to be the politeness of of at least acknowledging if it's not if it's not going to happen, like fine. Like yeah. there are people who don't who hate doing it. Like yeah. that's that doesn't bother me, but like do you feel like just, they owe you to that information before you uh, No. No. They can no, spring it on you afterwards. I mean, it, it, <laughs> they could spring it on you afterwards. I think that like that just acknowledging that they're you know like like even if somebody said like hey like in the airport you know i know my bag is here but like i have something really valuable i don't want to put on the floor i'm really sorry like that that'd be fine like in the same way that like saying like hey man thanks thanks for like the oral sex but um just so you know like i have like a gag reflex or whatever like (laughs) it does not allow me to Just so you know, like I have no interest. There's in no actually. fucking way that I'm <laughs> yeah. going to touch you. It's disgusting. You. Do you love me? Very, very much. <sighs> Would you give me oral pleasure? Will you kiss it? But you first. Uh, but but wait a minute so uh, I'm trying to to just pin down the parameters of this like are you talking about like a one night stand or is this like even into a relationship like Um, I think that like if it goes unspoken into a relationship so here's where where like it could happen like so it could happen that that one partner really loves doing it so they're they always do it to to their partner And because they love doing it and they love giving their partner pleasure, or maybe it brings them pleasure to do it, um, they continue to do it, but then it's never mentioned why their partner isn't doing it back. Like I would worry like, dude, is like, do do I smell bad? Like, is it, it, you know, like, is there some reason that like you just continuously ignore like my, my side of thing that is hanging there? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like. I feel like it should just be something that's put put out there. You know, like, uh, well, you're the married so, man. Tell you tell me I, how it works as a married person. Is it, uh, is it, is it in the contract? <laughs> it's in the uh, yeah. It's in the things that you sign. Um, <laughs> the prenup. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I think that I I always wondered what would be the episode where, <laughs> you know, like we finally <laughs> get in trouble and like charges brought against us and i didn't think it would be the moral pet peeves one but 158 <laughs> the last episode this is uh, but this is like i mean this goes both like this goes both ways there's nothing gender right. there's nothing gendered or about this like you know the, it might be a greater problem in the gay ma- male community i'd love to hear what what the norms are there like 
it's just expected. Like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is an empirical uh, question. Hit us up. Email us. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does reciprocity extend? Does it matter if you're kind of like the butch one or the... Uh, yeah. Like, are there expectations yeah. that if you're the bottom, that you're the one who's going to initiate oral sex? Like, like I, I'm, I'm actually curious about the, the general norms and conventions. <laughs> All right. You know, one thing yeah. I was worried about is... Uh, that this would just explode into you and me yelling at each other about like it would just be <laughs> pet peeves about what the other person does. Like I know you, I was I was trying to think of pet peeves. I don't yeah. I don't think I think that like we pretty much air our our, our grievances. Per, yeah, <laughs> maybe when, not at first. When I think probably like the first yeah. first bit like there were there were things that like I'm sure I was passive aggressive about, but like now I think. I'll just tell you, like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, like when we, we would just, we figured out that it was just better to air out what we were, <laughs> what, what the problem was. But I, I do remember like 24 hour periods where I'd be like, I know Dave is pissed at me right now. <laughs> I, I absolutely know. And it's coming. And I'd just be waiting for that text or that. like, I, you know, And then I it would remember, come with a vengeance. It would come with <laughs> I, I remember actually being annoyed at you because, um, there was one time where you like got mad at me because you you thought I hadn't prepared appropriately. It was like maybe the day before or like the afternoon before we were going to record and you're like you haven't read the article yet. And I was like I'm going to read it like uh, just not and like you were mad at me. And then I remember just like holding on to that until until the day that you told me that you hadn't prepared just to be like see see that probably didn't take long. It probably didn't take long for that day to come. Uh, yeah. It's much better to just say say things. Like, like for instance, this was my way of telling you, you never fucking reciprocate and suck my dick. I'm waiting. sorry, I'll do it. I, I didn't know you felt that way about I've it. I've been but. waiting for a blowjob for so long. Like, how does it not enter your mind that, that I might want it to? I thought we had that kind of relationship where, <laughs> just all right um yeah the, this is it it was that was our last first segment now we're gonna go into our last second segment um we'll be right back to talk about conceptual binaries dave how are your balls feeling right now <laughs> it's funny you should ask tamler currently they're feeling loved comfortable hugged and uh that's because we have a new sponsor. It's Mac Weldon. Yes, Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. I'm currently girding my loins with their 18-hour jersey boxer briefs. To all of our listeners who aren't girding their loins with Mac Weldon, I feel bad for you. I feel your pain. I feel your rash, kind of rashy itch. This is why empathy is bad. Paul is right. <laughs> Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design and premium fabric. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. And in fact, I haven't been this excited about underwear, I think, since I was about six or seven, and I had a pair of Green Lantern underoos, and I like to, to just, like, put them on top of my pants and, like, pose. Um, now, now I'm just going to take <laughs> pictures of me wearing... My Mac Weldon. Available for purchase. Mac Weldon. 
believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Website is very easy to use. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. And they want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. I'm very glad that they don't ask you to return it. I, would, I wouldn't trust any company that asks you to return underwear. I got to say, I love the website too. I also bought, they make travel accessories and, um, you know, I'm kind of a big deal and I travel a lot. Um, and, right. Oh, yes. Sorry. Uh, but, I was supposed yeah, to pick up on that. Thank yes. you. You are uh, a big deal and you do travel a lot. And I bought myself uh, an Ion Tech case. It's like a, a laptop sleeve with some pockets that uh, means you can... S- just easily switch your stuff from bag to bag without having to like repack um and and i love that too i got my eye on their hoodie uh, yeah yeah, yeah actually me, really too, nice. me too yeah uh, so for 20 percent off your first order visit macweldon.com and enter promo code very bad wizards one word very bad wizards at checkout Again, for 20% off your first order, go to MacWeldon.com and enter promo code VERYBADWIZARDS at checkout. You won't regret it. Thank you to Mac Weldon for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us, who email us, who tweet at us in the various ways that you get in touch with us. Email is probably always the best. Facebook message, probably the worst. Um, (laughs) uh, We really appreciate it. We've had some really nice emails lately, some really interesting emails, even some critical emails and... I don't know. I really we don't have time to respond to a huge percentage of them, but we do read all of them and we really value it. So you can email us verybadwizards at gmail dot com, uh, tweet us at Tamler at peas at verybadwizards. The three uh, Twitter accounts. You can like us on Facebook. You can go to our Reddit. Uh, subreddit which is not run by us not organized by us and we make no promises about what we read and what we don't but um, it's a really good community like I you know reddit has its ups and downs uh, and I'd say that this is a really nice community overall it's still reddit but overall (laughs) it seems like a thoughtful group of people and they post a lot of funny things too so um, so you can go there and you can like us on Instagram. Uh, 
or follow us on Instagram. Sorry, you can follow us on Instagram, <laughs> and uh, you can support us in more tangible ways uh, as well. And we a, a special thank you to all the people who do this. There are three ways to do it. Three to four. Um, there is to click on the Amazon link on the website and then purchase, make the purchases you would otherwise make, and we get a small cut of that. I uh, really appreciate everybody who does that. Um, you can give us a one-time donation or even a recurring donation on PayPal. Um, you can get a get some merch on Teespring. We got to do an, get another campaign up and running yeah, at a certain yeah. point. You, and, and finally, you can become one of our deeply beloved Patreon supporters and give us a little amount per month. And there are some bonus content up there, depending on your level, uh, including the fact that our uh, well, all of our patrons get to suggest episodes and our $5 and up patrons get to vote on a topic and we gave the finalists last time and it it turned out to be a two-topic race for the most part there was ethics of care denial of death and what was the third one oh p- uh, polyamory and those three never really made a strong run for it but it was self-deception and parenting does parenting matter and also ethics of parenting uh they were kind of flip-flopping for a while it was sort of fun to watch but in the end uh parenting does parenting matter and parenting ethics is our winner and that will and and maybe we'll get paul to talk about this yeah i think it might be that he would be a great person to talk yeah i think he inspired this right it's a genuine development psychologist um, I was rooting for self-deception. God damn. Were you, though? Yeah. You think you yeah. were. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you to all of our patrons and all of the people who get in touch with us and who support us. You are what makes us do this at the increasing expense of our other lives and obligations. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. So, yeah, so this was a your idea of for a paper and uh a topic that you wanted to get to sooner rather than later. So, so tell us about it. This start, you know, I've griped about this before. Um so I'll I'll give a little bit. So the idea is um the broad idea is that we tend to think in in sort of these conceptual dichotomies that we're across many domains and like Tamler was saying in our fields people just like theorizing classifying categorizing things into two in psychology in my in my area of social psychology the field has been sort of dominated by these dual process theories of of the human mind and they all have a very similar flavor even though the specifics of all of them um, vary um, but ever, you know, since like the 70s, people have been proposing that there are two primary ways in which, say, cognition works. It's Kahneman. Um, Wait, is it Kahneman? The- uh, Kahneman? Kahneman wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. But is, um, that, ba- is that based on his early work, the type one, type two sort of? The, the type one and type two does come from Kahneman's work, um, Kahneman and Tversky and... Uh, 
type one and type um it was coined a, a bit later like uh, in the 90s but um but yeah that's one example right so the idea there being uh that there is a mental process that's associated with effort and deliberation and you know really really thinking hard about something and there's cognitive processes that are intuitive and fast and automatic and unconscious and uncontrolled and those understanding human judgment um is uh you you can understand it as under what conditions people are making judgments specifically for Kahneman and Tversky under judgments of under uncertainty like what whether they're stopping to think about it deeply or whether they're just like going with their gut that made its way into moral psychology as any listener of this podcast probably knows so Josh Green's view of morality is that when you if you think hard about it you you become a consequentialist but if you go with your gut you're more like a deontologist and that itself, those moral theories are also like... And those are also dichotomies, right? So. Dichotomies that don't necessarily have to <laughs> That's be right. dichotomy. Like even, even before like type 1, type 2, there were theories of persuasion and social psychology that essentially were the same thing. So, so the question was, say, uh, Tamler, I want to convince you to stop smoking, um, do I present you with a bunch of statistics about how you might die when you smoke? Um, or do I give you an ad with like, like an attractive person telling you like, don't smoke. I don't smoke either. And so the idea in those theories of persuasion was, well, it depends which one works depends on whether you are under the right conditions. Do you have the cognitive resources to think deeply about it? Then the statistics will work. Or are you just going with your gut reaction, in which case, like the celebrity ad will work? Um, so, so they've been around for a, for a long time, and they've always just really annoyed me, right? So, and my like my gripe with it always was that when you divide cognition into two types, like Josh Green does, or 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 Con the Conor Tversky, and you say one is about deliberation. And the other one is about whatever that you're missing out on so much different psychology. And John Haidt does this in his original uh, paper, "The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tail," yeah. where when he outlines what System One, which is the fast unconscious, right? He he says like this category of thinking includes emotions, intuitions, uncontrollable and unconscious thinking, and all of those things could be very, very psychologically different. In fact, even what kind of emotion is influencing your judgment, um, like it matters to distinguish uh, which emotion is influencing you. But let's just even take intuition, right? When we use the word intuition, we might mean an intuition that has come from a whole bunch of learning, like a chess master has intuitions about what move to, to perform next. Um, that's a very, very different intuition than one that is like, say, evolutionarily evolved, say, like the, a resistance to incest, a disgust reaction to incest. Um, that's like an emotional response at something that, that pro probably evolved. So if you care about what the mind is like, like how the mind works, to lump everything together in that system one, I think is, is ridiculous. It's doing a disservice. I'll get to maybe a defense of this view later, but like, but it was nice to find this paper. So this is a paper by 
David Melnikoff and John Barge called the mythical number two that tries to sort of take apart this this style of theorizing. So can I just, for people like myself, who are generally familiar with this type one, type two stuff, but not uh, specifics, the and and just in terms of this paper so cuz it talks a lot about this type 1 type 2 distinction but the but the idea is that in type 1 the judgments are unconscious unintentional uncontrollable and uh efficient yeah like all those four things and then in the other one it's the opposite so non an inefficient controllable conscious and uh intentional intentional so um and 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 just the way they start out is by saying look if you if you even just agree that those are the only kind of those are the proper categories um there's no reason to think that all four of them four of them are grouped in one place and four of them are grouped in the other in just two quadrants like there's 16 possible quadrants 16 possible and so why would you think that they would all be grouped together that's actually a pretty striking claim that you that would need a lot of evidence in support of it and it doesn't have that right right so so it's like sort of a a, a, the dual process theory has just proceeded by largely by an agreement that this assumption was okay. And I have to say, John Barge, you know, even though he's writing this critique, um, he's, he's the person who put sort of automatic behavior on the map. He's the name associated with automaticity yeah. in social right. psychology. And, but that's okay if he... Yeah, no, yeah, no, it's great that he's, yeah. it, it's great that, that he's actually uh, writing this paper. So yeah, and... and um, I remember early on before before this system, they call it type one, type two, but the Kahneman-Tversky way is system one, system two. So forgive me if I float between the two. I'll, yeah. I'll forget. Um, but, you know, early on, I remember there this when I was talking about these persuasion models, uh, there's one called the elaboration likelihood model um, by uh, Richard Petty and John Cassiopo. And it seemed like really complicated, right? It has all these like boxes and arrows and it just all boiled down to sometimes you think hard and sometimes you don't. Like it's just like all of these theories boil down to that and what it means specifically to think hard and not think hard. And, um, and I, like it took, it took such a hold of the field that I remember when I was in grad school, uh, like an edited volume came out <clears throat> that was called Dual Process Theories in Social Psychology. And I, I remember um, being like, like, even at that point, being like, this is, like, why would you categorize theories by the number of things in the theory? <laughs> like, it was literally like, hey, the number two seems to pop up across a whole bunch of different theories. Like, let's get right. people together and write, write about the number two. It has like some magic, magic hold uh, on people. So this article, The Mythical Number Two, is, as you said trying to argue that it is a bad thing to continue to talk about uh, two systems or two types for the very reason that you said, because you can have things that are, say, uh, intentional and also automatic, which I think is obvious, right? So, so, um, you know, you learn to drive. When I drive, I am doing so intentionally, but pretty automatic like me turning the steering wheel or shifting gears or whatever the case might be right. 
it's it's almost i don't know you as an outsider you tell me is but it's always seemed to me like so obvious that i don't, yeah. I don't know why it took hold like that's just yeah. yeah no i mean i think that's right like it's it seems very faith-based like just <laughs> like a religion where people never really think to question some of the totally implausible almost insane claims that uh from the outside it seems like and yeah. from the inside it's like no th- these are our starting premises we've grown up with these like this is our world yeah. right i think that part of it is um a result of conceptual sloppiness on the part of social psychologists because i i don't think that it was that they were so insensitive to the facts of the matter. It's just that they very easily were comfortable yeah, with this slippery definitions of what automatic means and what unconscious means. Yeah. And in fact, the, but this isn't cited because it was a paper that nobody read, but Paul Blue, Eric Ullman, and I once wrote a paper called The Varieties of Unconscious Social Cognition, where we were trying to point out that like, oftentimes you are... Uh, you you might be there's different kinds of unconscious and the, the, pe- the authors of this paper pointed out too you can be unconscious of the influence that caused you to have a preference say so like why do i like uh coffee i don't know for all i know it's because somebody in my youth drank coffee that, and i liked them and the smell like made me kind of like it and that's why i enjoy it now um but i know i like coffee that's not unconscious Right. right. Like it's it's not unavailable to me to tell you that I have this preference for coffee. Um, but but for some reason, um, we just as social psychologists just started lump, lumping these concepts together and not really questioning, questioning what the differences were. And this is like, again, you know, like obviously I'm a fan of philosophy, but I think a philosopher would have noticed right away. Well, like, what exactly do you mean by unconscious here, right? Like, what do you, do you mean that it's completely inaccessible? Do you mean that you are unaware of the things that gave rise to this? Like, I see, I, I think you're giving philosophy, I mean, we might have done that about this particular issue. Yeah. But when you look at moral philosophy and other kinds of philosophy, you find all sorts of similar analogous binaries like just the retributivism and utilitarianism and the philosophy of punishment like just seemed like the only two conceivable approaches to punishment for uh for a very long time and in the minds of some people still uh, a lot of people still today uh and yeah you know on the margins people are like well there's this kind of retributivism and that kind of retributivism but you're still and working within that framework or people who came up with hybrid theories it's like yeah but you're still thinking it has to be part of this right, and right. part of that and you know that's the that's the, like the materials that you're working with it's yeah it's what you're allowed to start with yeah. right um you know my one of my favorite examples of this is really old and it goes crosses disciplines um and it's cognition and emotion and so yeah or reason and emotion and so people ever since at least i started studying emotion in grad school it's just everybody just says well we know that they are not clear dichotomies um but then but then they always proceed to treat them as dichotomies and it's like (laughs) exactly that's what i mean by shrugging off they'll like acknowledge at some abstract level the 
totally oversimplification of their model and then go on to use the model. Right. As if it's not an oversimplification. I actually found this analogy that they give in their conclusion really helpful. So they say, like, there are two types of cars, convertibles yeah. and hardtops. And that's true. Not, no problem there. And then we also say there's automatic and manual transmission. Yep, that's right. Gasoline and electric motors and hybrids, foreign and domestic. And then he says the point is that these are all different types of cars. We know that it's not just two types of cars overall. Right. Convertibles have manual transmission, gasoline engines, and are manufactured overseas, and hardtops that have automatic. Like, But that's... Right. So imagine having a theory of cars that just thought that all of those... That there were only two types of cars, and, you know... And can you imagine, this like... This group that <laughs> has that four features and this group has that four features can you imagine like a thousand papers on like convertibles versus uh, <laughs> hard tops and being like well you know sometimes we find a difference and sometimes we don't and it's like really like you know Weird. sometimes yeah. we find that they both can uh travel at the same speed uh and who knows why you know this is a deep mystery for for the future <laughs> of the study of cars further research should investigate <laughs> whether right. or not, like what the and modern they, is i mean we know that it's slightly oversimplifying to say that there's only two types of cars but anyway yeah. but <laughs> uh we ran this experiment where <laughs> We tried to open up a yeah. We did a electric true experiment. Car. This is science. Like, we like yeah. cracked open a hard top <laughs> and we put a cloth thing over it, and it you know it still drove the same. It was yeah. weird. It, it was, was very weird. very weird. Like it was yeah. a failed experiment. But thankfully, open science allows us to re to report non non significant results. So so what you could say is that well, cognition is a separate thing from emotion. It's just that sometimes. Uh, when we're talking about emotion, we're not realizing that cognition is also coming along for the ride. Okay, fine. But you're still embracing the dichotomy. You're still saying right. like, these are two things, these are two ingredients. And it just turns out that when you use one ingredient, the other one ha like either necessarily has to come along or, or just contingently comes along. But, but people would say like, there is no dis clear distinction between cognition and emotion. And it's like, well then just fucking stop saying cognition and emotion. Like, just right. come up with another like <laughs> cog cog motion. I don't know. Like, if you really believe that there's no distinction, it's hard to overemphasize how much these kinds of dichotomies and distinctions ha are at the roots, the core, the foundation of the research that is yeah. being done. Like, so really, questioning them is is questioning something pretty foundational. You're yeah. really bringing the, the, the house down if you start to challenge this, which is probably another reason why, um, you know, you're at the center of the, you're closer to the center of that Quinean web of belief than people would like. Because What's the Quinean web? You know, where it's like there's certain things, core beliefs, oh, yeah. that if you, ch if you challenge those, it'll destroy right, all your beliefs, there. your whole beliefs. And then there's ones on the fringe where if you change your mind about those, it doesn't really affect that much right. of the rest of the web. But if right. you go into the center of the web, like the whole web comes apart and right. you have to like start all over essentially. Right, right. And so like I can't overemphasize how much the Kahneman-Tversky and others, the judgment and decision-making folks, how much that system one, system two has influenced not just the field, 
but applied work, the work that government is doing, work right. that even I do in in um, like consulting, um, and it's that is the core idea. There is that look, we have a number of heuristics that we use, the shortcuts to thinking that that we use, and so that's what Kahneman and Tversky sort of famously in, introduced or at least popularized. Um, a catalog of heuristics, which are just mental shortcuts. And the idea was always that, hey, your your mind, you know, we have a limited set of, we have a limited amount of cognitive resources. We can't think deeply about every single decision we make. So perhaps what has evolved or maybe what we've learned are, are these just general rules to help us avoid making, uh, having to deliberate every time we make a decision. So a thing... Something like a stereotype would be a heuristic. All, all, all kinds of these heuristics that influence our judgment that are automatic and they're quick. And the reason that we have them is because they work on average. But the key message is that they lead to error. So they lead to bias. So Kahneman Tversky, their career was built on showing under what conditions you could show that people fuck up really badly by relying on these heuristics. And so the goal, which is not a bad goal, like say for like public policy, like why do people do, why do people make bad decisions, say about savings um, or about whatever organ donation or whatever? It's because they're relying on these heuristics. So if only we can get people to use system two, that deliberate process, then maybe we can stop people from making errors. And that's exactly what, say, Josh Green believes about consequentialism, right? right? If only we could get people to stop going with their gut we could get them to realize that consequentialism is is the right is the right theory to to endorse right on Josh Green's view the evidence against deontological judgments is the fact that we make them unconsciously <laughs> and automatically right. uh, or at least that's part that's some of the evidence against them you know yeah. and we've evolved to do it and there's that whole element of it but that's the idea is if this comes from this automatic heuristic that we have to save cognitive resources, then that gives us reason to doubt the truth of it. Right. And and interestingly, like what got lost along the way um, was the the claim that that the heuristics often do lead to true judgments. Right. Like that's why they exist. Right. And so so like <laughs> That there is nothing that is inherent in the process of applying a heuristic that that means that it's wrong, right? It could be truth tracking, like you know, you know, yeah. um, it's like you oh, need right. a different set of evidence to show when it's right and when it's wrong. And the flip side, which they describe very well in this paper, a lot of the time when we're reasoning and deliberating, exactly. we're very prone to make errors because there's all sorts of things like, uh, you know, reasoning errors, motivated reasoning, um, all sorts of different ways in which we can convince ourselves of a belief uh, that it's true using our reason, but we won't think of it that way. We'll think of it as we are deliberating using this, uh, using our our reason, our rational right. capacities towards the truth, when in fact right. that's not what we're doing. Right. There's somehow it got conflated that the process of deliberation 
is a is akin or equal to valid reasoning and and that's just not as obviously not the case and like we've talked many times on this podcast about like the the stuff on motivated reasoning that when yeah. when you get people who are especially good at reasoning they're able <laughs> they're able to convince themselves better that they're that they're right uh, so the bias is actually accentuated not attenuated so like I'm convinced by the paper that we should abandon this. And I, I think they oversell how much people disagree with this. I think that like a lot, a lot of people are really dissatisfied with this dichotomy in theory. It's just that, and this might get us to, to the next topic. It's hard to think of things in, in like 16 cells versus two. Yeah. Right. Like it just is, it's harder. Uh, like um and so i don't you know that this has always been my fear about psychology that if you really want to understand why for instance we make the judgments that we do we're going to need to understand interactions between like 50 different variables and at that point like only a computer will be able to to like figure out the underlying principles if there are any of our judgment um but i've been living in this world of experimental social psychology where at best you have like what we call a two by two design four cells so you say like i gave people coffee versus didn't and i gave them an easy versus a hard test and then i put up a graph and it's really really easy to grok because it's just like okay two here two here i can see the interaction and that just i I just don't think that that can be getting us very far and that corresponds with yeah the graphs you know have two <laughs> axes and like there's all everything like our our methods and our tools are designed for things to be in in twos and that could just not be the way the world works like i've been uh looking for people to commiserate about this for for a long time now and i'll never forget one of my favorite uh so uh, quotes from from a colleague of mine named Piotr Winkleman, who is at UC San Diego. It was like 14 years ago, I remember, because my wife at the time was pregnant. Um, I'm talking to him about my dissatisfaction with this. And he's just thinking about it. And he's like sort of tapping his cheek with his fingers, like looking away. And I'm like, oh, he's, he's a smart guy. He's going to say, yeah. like, he's going to really school me. And he goes, yes, I mean... What if there are five things? <laughs> like, so let's 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 divide the rest of the discussion into two parts. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't even mean that as a joke. Uh, so the the first is like a possible defense of what people are doing, yeah. which I think you gestured yeah. at, and we should talk about. And I have an some an idea about that. And the second is. Where do we go from here, you know, once we recognize this? Yeah. My quick defense is that when you're doing, say you are doing applied work where you're trying to get people to make better judgments. So better judgments about how they handle their finances, but about how they make choices about about what to purchase, maybe even how they make choices about uh, who to date. Um, and you have evidence that people systematically make these errors that even they themselves realize are errors yeah. and say that you show that if you give them the opportunity to really think about it, that they can correct those errors. 
then you might be able, you, you can deploy this theory not as, as a deep theory about how the mind works, but rather as a surface pragmatic theory about how to correct judgment under certain circumstances. So if, yeah. I, if, if I know for a fact, for instance, there's a lot of good work on, on poverty by a guy named uh, Elder Shafir. One of the things that he points out is that um, just being financially burdened, and I think we've both been there, you're under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, and under those circumstances, so, so like a lot of, say, single parents, right? One of the reasons that they don't even open a bank account is that they don't have time. They don't have the ability to set their kids aside to go to the bank to like, right. you know, talk it's to somebody about effect. opening up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, even the stress and the pressure of knowing that you're, you're going to overdraft, like your check isn't going to clear. That's like an incredible amount of, of what we would call cognitive load, but which just means there's a lot of shit on your mind that you can't handle. And so your other decisions might suffer. So if, if you really want to understand maybe the conditions under which you can maximize um, good decisions, um, but not all of them, but at least some of them, then, then using a dichotomy might actually be fine. Like it might actually be the case that if, so long as you specify Un, under which conditions thinking hard about something might lead to a better life, then you can go ahead and try to plan interventions for that. But that's that's an applied theory and not one that's discovering new things about the mind. It's just helping fix a problem. It's more of an engineering problem than it is a psychology, pro, like a psychology theory. So that doesn't seem to me to be a defense of what's happened, given that that's not how this uh, dichotomy has operated more a way, a productive way of possibly taking some of those ideas and yeah. right, like yeah. And I fear, I actually fear that the the thing that I just said is what a lot of people have in mind, but that crept its way into a true descriptive theory about the mind. Right. I think that there was some some somewhere it actually. Uh, like made people think that this is this is the right way of understanding how judgment works in general and i and i think that that's that's right so it's a it's a real tepid defense it's like a only very specifically do i think that maybe it's useful yeah so here's my defense very qualified and i'm not sure if i buy it but so here's a good example of a dichotomy in philosophy that's just really weird that so compatibilism and compatibilism about free yeah. will and moral responsibility it's just weird <laughs> that the camps got divided into those two things where libertarians are lumped with skeptics and uh compatibilists you know like a compatibilist like daniel dennett um is lumped with strawson and so that i mean it's just a silly and bizarre way for that debate to have been shaped up but maybe the defense is, look, we had to start somewhere. We had to find a way of talking about this. And we can't, you know, start out with uh, an like a, a massive, t massively complex topology. Then we'll just never go anywhere. By starting with this kind of framework, that allowed us to tease out distinctions and all sorts of ways in which, you know, the the 
different theories can be formed, and the Strassonian compatibilism is different from, uh, you know, Frankfurt's compatibilism or Susan Wolf's kind of compatibilism, and uh, and but but the, yeah. the, the 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 dichotomy as sort of silly and oversimplistic as it may look to us now was necessary to get us thinking about this in more complex ways. Right, maybe, and it, and it's. Like, do I reject or accept e-categoricalism? <laughs> um, <laughs> I almost right, I mean, because we were posed with that question, now we can make real progress on consciousness. I, I just want to report that you, I almost got a spit take out of Tamler. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's interesting because uh, I think, like, here's what might be going on. Like, say, say we just really have the desire to think in twos. Um, and then you keep, it's just essentially like a growing chart exponentially. And I think just sociologically, the problem is that um, now you have like 64 different positions, um, but most people are talking to each other about the, the one versus the other. And it's really hard to integrate any of this stuff into like a general theory. And you know what? Honestly, if somebody did write an article about the 64 varieties of non-cognitivism, I'd be like, eh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah. I'll reciprocate the oral sex. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Just, just, I don't want to have to read that uh, paper. Either, <laughs> either you will or you won't. Um, <laughs> so yeah you painted that as a dichotomy <laughs> you could just lick it once <laughs> um there's all sorts yeah. of complex shadings that's right if you use mostly hand and a little bit of mouth is that oral sex yeah um so like, i don't think it's a limitation in our in our abilities like i think we can represent like just like you know they do in this paper um you can represent 16 different ways of thinking of the mind. I just fear that people will always fall back on, on the two. And they'll say exactly like, as you were saying, sort of jokingly, well, yeah, yeah, I know. But like for now, like, let's just think of this. Well, this is an intervention paper though. The, the way yeah. they're doing it is to critique. It isn't a, uh, it is to critique a certain way of viewing the, the, the challenge will be now trying to, take this more complex map and create some better w w framework or, or a way of yeah. thinking about the mind. Yeah, right. So, you know, I mean, I took it a little bit as a positive claim to say, like, let's look at these 16, right? They review research that has, has sort of separated these processes. No, but that's what I mean. But it's yeah. but in a critical way, like to show, hey, look, you can be uh, yeah, intentionable, right. intentional and it's not, uh, and it's unconscious, it can be, or whatever the, the various right. variations they come up with. But that's not part of a larger theory. That's to show that your theory is false. It's, yeah. they're counterexamples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. um, but, but, it, it, but it's also providing a positive description of how the mind works. But it, you're right, it is in an attempt to show that this dual process theory is wrong. Um, I, like I wanted to say, actually, it remind, reminds me of something that, that, I didn't talk about, which is there's always been in social psychology, a really dominant set of theories about attribution where the question is, all right, Tamla, you behave in a certain way. Like what do I infer from your behavior? Right? So, um, you bumped into me 
uh, are you an asshole or not? Um, was right? And so the, the distinction that people have always made is something like, what, was it situational or dispositional? That is, did it emanate from your disposition right. or was it just a product of the external forces uh, working on, on your action? Like Stanford prison experiment. <clears throat> exactly, right. Like, was it right. the situation or was it the fact that they were brutal right. people? Yeah, and social psychologists just nut over this kind of distinction. And I remember feeling that like it really broke down when, when I was trying to study moral judgment and I was studying how people make inferences about emotional actions. So say that you um, you donated to charity because you were so overcome with emotion when you saw a commercial um, of starving children that you gave money. Like, is that a situational force or is it a dispositional force? Yeah. Like, it's pretty clear that it's both, right? It's not, it doesn't, like an emotion can generate from the kind of person that you are. Like, you're the kind of person who is moved by by this. And these are distinctions that philosophers have made for a long time. And yet, social psychology still, like, like reviewers would be like, I feel like it's situational versus dispositional. Yeah, yeah that's, a, so I, I totally agree. And I certainly have, you know, I used, to teach a section on situationism and I was you know and and again that thing of now I know obviously there's a little bit of both so you do a little hand wavy stuff to to say that you acknowledge that this is a spectrum and not you know but then you then like immediately forget it here's another kind of thing and I wanted to ask you about this because I was just commenting on a paper that was saying that like the emotion anger has a behavioral that's the action tendency. The yes, action thank you. tendency. Yeah, the action tendency. Uh, so anger, people want to punish, uh, make suffer, um, you know, engage in acts of retribution. So whenever you're angry, that is. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe that. <laughs> now I, I might be wrong, and maybe I am wrong. I couldn't believe that that psychologists really believed that. Like, there's so many different kinds of anger, and there's a lot of times where your anger angry and you don't want to hurt the person you don't want to like them to suffer in any way you don't want like even to feel guilty you just are pissed off and maybe you want something to change or maybe you want them to acknowledge something or maybe you know you want them to apologize but right this idea uh that there's only one action tendency for something like anger seemed crazy to me yeah and like they're they're there is there's a lot of that that is is you know somebody spelling out like the prototypical kind of emotional response so like fear makes you want to run away um right. but obviously that's also not not always right. the case um and i think that this is so like there there is this sort of self-perpetuating thing where you then bring people into the lab and do an experiment where you piss somebody off and you show that they are actually more likely to be mean to somebody else. Um, And you say, this is evidence that the action tendency for anger is to punish. But you haven't bothered to test a different kind of anger, right? You've been so driven by by this view that um, you, you haven't actually even thought of the variety of ways in which you could test this, you know, Lisa Feldman Barrett actually, in her, she she's really opposed to this view of emotion. She says even something like fear, we we think of 
a prototypical instance, like, you know, you're in the fucking savannah and you see a lion, right? That's like right. what we think of as fear. And she points out that, that um, there are so many different kinds of fear experiences that I, I think maybe she takes it too far, but but because she she argues that may, maybe this is just pure purely arbitrary that we lump all of them together under a certain word. Um, but I do take her point that it masks differences to use only one word, right? Right. Just in the same way that calling something system one will mask differences because you've lumped it into one word. And, and, and like the way that this gets embedded. So let's say you want to find out if somebody is angry, but you can't test their anger because right. so so you'll so you'll maybe give them a questionnaire that says that they want to punish somebody and then you'll infer from that that they're angry because yeah. you've established that link so yeah. you're like oh well the two things go together so like if you can show one that's a sign that they have the other and then now like you know like you're you know like that's kind of stuff gets done all the time I know, I know that you probably won't get this reference because you don't watch Seinfeld, but there is a hilarious episode where Uncle Leo, who is Jerry's, Jerry's uncle, uh, burns off his eyebrows and uh, Elaine is trying to sneak into his doctor's appointment because she can't get a doctor's appointment and she paints eyebrows on him. But the way that she paints them makes it makes him look like he's making an anger face. Yeah, and then when the doctor comes in, he's like, "Leo, calm down." Like he's like, "What are you yeah. talking about?" He's like, "Leo, why?" Are, like <laughs> that just reminds me of exactly what you said. The presence of a superficial feature does not indicate oh, necessarily indicate that, that feature. right. That, That's right. That, that, that <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, like there's a there's a different way in which what sometimes what these um, people who talk about action tendencies are are often appraisal theorists. So, so they think that there are some judgments that give rise to, to an emotion. So um, what it means to be angry is that you feel that somebody has done a blameworthy thing. So you feel that they had control over what they did and it was harmful to you. And that, all, that sometimes uh, they blur the line between just what anger means, like what, what we generally take the, the sentiment anger to be describing and an empirical finding, which is right. when I anger somebody, cause you, cause you have to make a conceptual definition or else like, how do, how do I anger somebody? So, so yeah, like I, I, it is problematic across a number of, <laughs> a number of fields. And I'm sure it's true in like history or political theory. There's probably a lot of this, these kinds of dichotomies that are blurring things. And, you know, I think the question is whether it's more helpful than harmful. Like, I think there are probably times where it's helpful, but there are times where it's, it's masking important distinctions that, then just multiply like now you're linking this phenomenon with a different kind of phenomenon and you know the the oversimplifications are multiplying to the point where you're just not you're you're no closer to understanding the, right. the thing that you're trying to understand than you were before you even started any of this research right that's and that's a depressing conclusion but <laughs> But it might be <laughs> where might we are actually. with some with some things, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, 
so like why so why are we like this i think there's like a a a trivial answer to why we dichotomize um but then there's maybe more interesting ones like it's easy like that's the the, yeah. the simple the simplest answer is that that it's just very very easy to think about two things um and and maybe there's a more interesting there's an interesting body of research about numeracy um that you might be familiar with but but the idea is that um both some human cultures uh, uh early at least early human cultures as well and even infants and some animals that they their num their, their ability to track numbers is very limited that is they don't they don't have numbers it took human beings a long time to invent like you know integers but people are able to track one two and many so in some cases one two three and many right. and and that doesn't seem to require uh anything like a complex numerical system that's just sort of the like our brains are capable of that without any without any real training and so it makes sense that um that we would favor the numbers two and three you know they pop up all over the place like this is something deeply embedded in us um i think the other reason is that often many of the important decisions we would have made are dichotomous so like you have to decide whether or not to do something Right. And so right. like take good and bad. Um, I was talking recently to Molly Crockett. She came to give a talk here and she was talking about uh, inferences, moral inferences about people. Right? And this is some of the work that I did with her too. Like we tend to categorize people as good or bad. Um, and we do it really easily and we do it a lot. And the question I was asking her is like, it's, is it, it's weird. We both study this and we both know that people do this, but like, it's also obviously true that nobody is either all good, good. Or, like yeah. all good or all bad. Like there's no such thing as just a, a true villain or not. And we were talking about, you know, if, if the decision really is, do I want to cooperate with you? Um, yeah. Like I have to boil it down to a dichotomous decision, right? Yeah. Either yes or no. And so categorizing people into yeses and nos might actually be a very, very efficient way of maintaining sort of this, the, your ability to, to get, gather resources from other people. Um, because you do have to make decisions. Otherwise, you'd be paralyzed. Yeah. The analogy that I, that I really like, I think I've, I've brought this up before. Um, there's a website, I think, called Umbrella or Not. If, have I brought this up before? Yes, um, many times. Yeah, many times. I've probably right? edited it out every single time. Every but. single time. But in this case, don't edit it out because it is an exactly right kind of analogy for why dichotomous reasoning is important because it's hard to know what it means when it says 35% chance of rain or 70% chance of rain. All I want to know is like, do I take an umbrella or not? That's like, this is the decision that I have to make it's very hard for human beings to process that, well, on these kind of days, 70% of the time it rained. Like, what do I care? Just tell me whether or not like to wear, a, you know, fucking raincoat. Um, and I, and I think that <laughs> I, I've probably said this too, but maybe I added this out too, but like, this is the thing that drives Nate Silver crazy. Like when he says like Hillary had a 70% 
chance of winning or uh like people just took that as a hundred percent chance like (laughs) and so there's like you got it wrong it's like no i didn't like three out of ten times this is what would happen of course nate silver you're just backing off of your claim it's funny it's funny we are we don't understand it and i sometimes don't i don't understand what it means yeah. Give somebody a thirty percent chance of winning in such a one-time event. Yeah, you know, no, like, it's, it's too it's, hard. It's like it's, not. It's, it's it's actually kind of meaningless. Like like what it means yeah. is over time. Exactly what it means is over time, and for a lot of things, especially those things that are just a single event, it's hard to then sort of right. figure out. That's why it's good to have rules like when you're playing uh, twenty-one blackjack, right? Right. You know that it's probabilistic. You know that if you have a, a yeah. 16, like you may or may not win. But like to have a rule that keeps you in check so that over time you do better, like yeah. the rule is a dichotomous one. It's like, and people treat it almost as just like absolute yeah. truth. Like, no, you never hit on whatever 17 or something. Yeah. Um, so it is important for that. And then it really probably just depends on the case, whether it does more harm than good to divide, uh, things up in a certain way. Like I think in the punishment debate, it's probably done more harm than good that it immediately got divided into these two kinds of approaches to the expense of all sorts of other, uh, possible ways. And also, you know, in ways that are, are masking how criminal justice really works and like what is actually going on, which has nothing to do with this simple dichotomy of are we punishing you in a retributive way or a utilitarian way? Right. And so, but people think of punishment that way and that's been really harmful. But in other cases, maybe it's been helpful first step to divide things up pretty neatly maybe compatibilism and compatibilism was like this where it's actually it was a necessary way to try to wrap our heads around an immensely complex problem to just start out with something and then with that framework yeah start to tease out the complexities so i mean the way your field is like that right the way the way that like the analogy that comes to my head is like sup- suppose that you have like a big pile of like a bunch of different things like say i don't know legos and you you want to organize them it's not unreasonable to start with like okay i'm going to just at least my first pass is going to separate like the the big blocks from the little ones right like and and so you start there so that you can then refine because that actually might save you time right if you have to make if you have to make a decision about what whether this is one of eight things like that might actually take you a longer time than if you say two, then two, then two, then two. Right. Um, but I agree with you that it sti- it stifles innovation and creativity to rely on just dichotomous categories because there is always the possibility you br- you bring up punishment. But you know, I think in a lot of cases it just leads people to ignore what might be staring them in the face, which is that there is a richness to to the world or to the conceptual world that is being completely ignored because of reliance on these categories yeah Yeah, i mean and so like that analogy the cars if for some reason people had grouped two types of cars convertible man you know the ones that are convertible and manual and american and um uh, gasoline versus electric, foreign, and whatever. Right. That wouldn't have been helpful at all. Like that would have been. And any right. any further research on 
cars <laughs> and classifying cars and it w- would have just been completely corrupted by that just arbitrary right. uh, way of, of grouping them. And yet, you know, so like that really would have been an, uh, a just a, a, something that distorted your understanding of cars, not something that was a first step towards understanding cars better. Right. It's hard to know when when it's been uh, when it's an arbitrary classification unless you do a little bit more digging to find like, is there any <laughs> is there anything that is generating this dichotomy that I brought it's up? Like, later? oh, this has a this is a gasoline car. So we can infer from that that it's also a, a hard top car. <laughs> yeah. And then we, when we run this experiment about <laughs> how hard top cars, we'll just say this is true of gasoline cars. It would just be like it, it, it would. And then that. Now that's your established finding. Right. Gasoline cars have this feature because you're the hard top that they ran on has that feature. And you make a yeah. do a lot of work, so it makes it seem like you're progressing. Like I think this is what's happened in dual process theories of the human mind. Like you you catalog right. all this work that you've been doing. You're like, no, like we, you know, like we're moving beyond just these two, but like we're making progress. Don't worry. And I'm, and and it's like, no, you could actually be completely fucking it up yeah that's what i mean like it it, this i guess it's whether it's at the like core of the web or at the fringes like it could be at the core with dual process stuff and if it's that then this whole edifice comes tumbling down of results and findings and because they've been relying on that 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 dichotomy right and all their experiments and then confirmation bias kicks in you know and and it's really hard to discard to discard that feature of the theory um the last thing i was going to say is that like i think that thinking in dichotomies at at some point in the history of humanity just was much like it was fine for a lot of things it could just be that the world was such that dichotomous decisions dominated and so we weren't making dumb mistakes all the time um but now like the world is so complex and there's so many things that are actually you know they're multiple everything has multiple attributes um a lot of them which are continuous and it's just really hard to to come up with with like how to evaluate this stuff this is why like the websites like the wire cutter have you ever been on the wire cutter no like all it if it you basically if you want to know like what the best uh, air purifier is, it just tells you. It just says buy this yeah. one, right? It doesn't like list all of them yeah. and give them ratings because oh, it's like, well, yeah. yeah, it's it's a great idea. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, I need. I'm definitely going to go to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there's a couple. So it could just be that we have these blinkered lenses on now, and we're too deep in to do anything about it. Uh, you know, we we could start being like Kantians and start to think, no, this is our conceptual way of understanding. Like, this is our conceptual right. framework that, uh, and so it's transcendentally true of, like, because these are our <laughs> categories or something. Like, but in terms of really understanding it uh, the way we like to think, it it could it could literally be that that's not like we're not capable of at this point fixing this I, this is like the truth truth will come from uh from machines and algorithms and we'll yeah. just be slaves to the to the truth that they're tracking like they'll be right more i mean more often than not like now we're relying on models to predict yeah. 
um, that way uh, do way way better than than human judgment. And this is like for a conversation for another time. But when we get back to the question of of justice and punishment and the legal system, um, and we talk about the role of machines in in actually making decisions, say about parole, um, I, I I wonder if you'll be more open open to to an algorithm that can take into account a lot more information um, to generate a, a, an optimal judgment. Uh, well, we will uh, we'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see. All right, we've been going on way too way long, too long. So join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.